Today, we begin our verse-by-verse study through the famous book of Revelation. Even if people don't know their Bibles very well, they probably know a thing or two about Revelation, or at least they've heard about it. And some of you, when you found out we were going to be studying through Revelation, got very, very excited. And you invited your friends, and you went home, and you brushed up on some of your, your favorite Bible studies, and you're ready to roll. But the rest of you might be here wondering, why? Why are we going through Revelation. And maybe there's not exasperation there. There might be, but maybe it's just, okay, but there's a whole big Bible. Why do we want to spend our time on something that is so confusing? Well, I've got three good reasons for you of why we're studying the book of Revelation. Number one, the book of Revelation is the key contributor to Bible eschatology. Eschatology means studies of the end times, of the last things. And if you don't have Revelation, you are really, you haven't finished your study yet. And we've already done 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, which are two of the key books in that subject as well. We just finished Daniel. About half of that was about the end times. So there's no better time for us to dive right in to the book of Revelation so that we can get a more complete picture of the end times. Secondly, and maybe this should have been first, this is scripture. That's why we teach verse by verse through the whole Bible and we don't skip anything. 2 Timothy 3 says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, even revelation, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. If we do not have a complete Bible or a knowledge of the complete Bible, then we will not be complete Christians. So we're, we're studying it because God gave it to us and he seemed to think it'd be good for us. And the third reason I'm very eager to get into this book there are so many misunderstandings and mishandlings of the book of Revelation in the church that I think it is incumbent upon me as a pastor and as a teacher of the word to reclaim some of that. Some people abuse the book of Revelation. Maybe you sat in some of those churches or maybe you left one of those churches for this reason where everything in the, in the book of Revelation seems to be not so much about the coming of Christ but about the current political situation. Or you, you torture these symbols to kind of mean whatever you want and you've seen it used as a battering ram for a pastor's favorite hobby horses instead of breaking it down and interpreting it and studying it like we would Romans or, Gen or Genesis or any other book of the Bible. That's not good. And there are many people with whom I agree on the interpretation of Revelation who I absolutely disagree with on their methodology of studying the book of Revelation. But others, rather than abusing the book, they avoid the book entirely. The fact that I even need to have this conversation at the beginning, why Revelation? Because most don't. Most don't. In fact, even most people that love to talk about Bible prophecy don't want to do a breakdown of the book of Revelation. They'd rather just talk about these issues I have found, and that's not good. Others say, look, Revelation is too controversial, right? People fight over it all the time. That's true. But I don't want to bring that into our church. So the modern seeker-friendly church movement, which is kind of fizzling out in many ways, but that one of the big things that they focused on is we're not really going to talk about eschatology because people just fight about it. And I think that's a shame. Others say it's just too difficult. You go to a pastor's meeting and you say you're teaching through Revelation, they all kind of laugh at you and slap you on the back and say, good luck, bucko. And they all kind of know, like, I, I don't know how to interpret most of that, so I'm not going to teach it to the, to the congregation. And some people just say it's too obscure. So even if you do understand what Revelation means, what is it really going to add to the congregation? So they avoid it entirely. 
Well, I believe that sound Bible study will enable us to avoid both of those excesses. That we're not going to abuse it and we're not going to avoid it, but sound methodology, as we have consistently practiced here at this church, will enable us to correct both of these excesses as well. To correct those who abuse the text and to correct those who avoid it as well. Proverbs 25.2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it is the glory of kings to uncover it. And there might be a little lesson right there in that because Jesus Christ, our King, is in fact the one who has uncovered what God is going to do at the end. Personally, when I was growing up, Revelation was my favorite book to study. I mean like from fifth grade forward. That's what I wanted to do. I read, of course, I read not only all of the children's left behind books, but all the adult left behind books and watched all the movies and read everything I could get my hands on about the rapture or the second coming or the, uh, the beast and the antichrist. And I told a story during the prayer meeting before church. When I was in seventh grade and I went to our Bible club, I only went twice. The first time I went, uh, somebody read a devotional and I thought that was kind of weak sauce. So I offered to, to teach the next time. I was, right, give me a break, I was 12 here, okay? But, uh, so as far as I can recall, this was the first time I ever taught anything from a pulpit. It was a group of, you know, like five or six middle schoolers, but I chose to talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And uh, I remember teaching this and most, it was, I, it was like one or two other guys and all the rest were, you know, sweet Christian girls and they're looking at me like, this, I'm talking about war and famine and this. And I, I kind of halfway through broke off and said, oh, by the way, the rapture happened first and just kind of ran off on that and it was terrible. And uh, I was so embarrassed, I never went back to the Bible club. Uh, but I come to find out that the teacher that sponsored that class, her husband was actually a professor at Liberty University who taught uh, Old Testament and had written some books on eschatology. So that was kind of a, an ironic turn. But I was very enthusiastic about these things. And as I got a little older, I learned that to kind of tame my energies on that. But I'll tell you, as I've been reading and getting ready for this book, I've been reminded why it was so exciting. And there are worse things than a young man who gets a little overexcited about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you agree? So I, as a teacher, may not be entirely up to this task, but I know and I believe that by the Holy Spirit, we're going to be instructed and edified as we go through this book. Now, Revelation is one of like, it's on the short list of books that need a good long introduction. So that's what we're going to have today. So if you're taking notes, if you like taking notes during church, you're going to love this one today. Let's go through the, these first issues before we get into this. Number one, Revelation's author. Revelation was authored by a man who calls himself John, your brother and partner. And the question immediately becomes, which John? Read through the Gospels, read through the epistles. There's lots of guys named John. But traditionally, this is John the Apostle. This is the author of the Gospel of John, the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Um, the son of Zebedee, the one that was in Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John, that leaned on him at dinner and asked him who was going to betray him. This is the unanimous early church tradition. If you go back to uh, the second century, especially guys like Irenaeus, who's the Bishop of Lyon, that they all assumed that John the Apostle wrote this. Uh, and that makes sense because he's going to write letters to churches in Asia Minor, especially Ephesus. And we know from church history that John became the pastor of the church of Ephesus after the fall of Jerusalem. So that totally fits that he'd be writing this to them. However, there was a church father named Dionysius of Alexandria, who was a Christian brother, but he proposed that this was not John the Apostle, but that the references in the Bible to John the Elder are actually a different John. That there were two Johns in Ephesus, John the Apostle, and this other one. 
Eusebius, the church historian, held to this view, if you've ever read Eusebius, which I highly recommend you read. But that, that's kind of not taken so seriously by most because Dionysius was of the Alexandrian school of theology, which was very into allegory and symbolism. And they were opposed to what at the time was called chiliasm. We'd call it today premillennialism, the belief that the thousand years is a literal thousand years. They thought that was carnal to think that Jesus would rule on a, on a physical world. They thought that you weren't reading into the spiritual truths behind Revelation. And that, most people agree, probably pushed Dionysius and Eusebius to uh, downplay the apostolic nature of the book of Revelation, which is the exact wrong way that you do things like that. So there are some questions. The, the language of Revelation is a little different than his other writings, to which I say, well, duh, because it's a very different book, isn't it? But uh, this is John, the son of Zebedee, the best choice. And as we go through, I'll draw out some things that kind of will remind us, isn't it just like how John writes? So this is John the apostle, and uh, we're going to assume that as we move forward. How about the date of Revelation? When was it written? This was very significant and still is because of how some people choose to interpret the book of Revelation. There is one very popular view of how to interpret this book that lives or dies based on when this book was written, which I think is a red flag in my opinion. But uh, the vast consensus across church history from the very beginning of the church to date is that Revelation was written in the 90s AD and that it was in fact the final book to be written. And this is, you can look that up, it's, it's most common view. However, uh, there are those who say they believe Revelation was written in the 60s AD under the reign of Nero. So many people believe they can see uh, references to the persecutions that Domitian, the emperor, was bringing about to the church. Others would rather say that's Nero. Why would they try to place it in the 60s against the majority of church opinion? Because the preterist view, which we'll talk about in a minute, believes that Revelation describes the fall of Israel, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the first persecution under Nero. That Revelation is all past events. But if it was written in the 90s, then the fall of Jerusalem had already happened. And the main thing that they try to use to interpret this book doesn't work. So uh, the discussion will center around, are there any clues in the book that tells us the situation that the people were facing? And um, I'm inclined to think that, that that is probably not the best way to go about it because I believe God is giving a legitimate prophecy of the future. And while there are things in the seven letters to the churches we can look to, I, I don't know how how persuasive that is for me. So uh, this is where we're going to, to stand, is that this was written with the majority of church history around 95 AD. If it was written in the 60s, and it was written to the church of Ephesus, which is one of the seven churches, Paul was ministering in Ephesus around that time. So it seems unlikely that, Paul, that John would be writing letters to a church when, when Paul is ministering. But uh, again, this is probably under the reign of Emperor Domitian, which had been probably right at the beginning of the, one of the first great persecutions that the church endured. Now let's talk about the genre of Revelation. Does this matter? You bet it does, because this is a very, very distinct book in your Bible. It's unique in the New Testament. It doesn't read like any of the other epistles, although Revelation is an epistle. If you look at the, the very beginning, we've already seen John to the seven churches in Asia. Grace and peace to you, right? That's how Paul opens his letters and Peter opens his letters. And it's going to close with a letter. Um, but I don't know if epistle is the best genre to describe this book, although it is a letter that was sent. I think the best thing is to call it prophecy because that's what he says, right? He says this prophecy is going to reference that. 
it is full, though. Not, it's not like Isaiah or Hosea or Micah or any of those prophets because they were more like declaring the word of the Lord and kind of very specifically saying this is what's going to happen. Revelation verges into what is often called apocalyptic literature. And they gets the name from Revelation, which means uh, is the Greek word apocalypse. We'll talk about that in a second. It's very symbolic. There's a lot of uh, special numbers. There's a lot of angels in it. There's a picture of the end of the world. Um, and so it, it certainly does get into that. But there are some who want to say, because Revelation is an apocalyptic writing, and all these other apocalyptic writings were just made up and weren't real visions, therefore Revelation couldn't have been a legitimate word from the Lord, and we shouldn't expect any legitimate uh, prophecies. So that's, we absolutely reject that. I heard somebody compare Revelation to a fever dream. It's just like, it's just, you, who can understand anything that it says? Well, you've got to slow down and, and go through it. You can understand it, but it is highly symbolic. It does have visions of the end of the world. It does have dragons and demons and locusts and all the rest of that and four horsemen and a beast, two beasts actually. But that doesn't mean that you can't understand it. And that's what people try to get. They try to focus on this apocalyptic literature, which arose in between the Testaments, mostly in imitation of Daniel. I would say, look at how the other apocalyptic literature in the Bible has been fulfilled. Look at Daniel. It was fulfilled literally. You know, there wasn't a literal ram with one horn larger than the other and then a goat that's horn split into four pieces. But the Medo-Persian Empire did literally fall to Alexander the Great, whose kingdom was broken up into four pieces. So that is how we're going to come at this. With that said, these symbols and signs become the most difficult point of interpretation in this book. It's very hard just to open it up, read it, and know exactly what you're getting at first blush. And there are four major interpretive approaches to the book of Revelation that you need to know. And each one, with maybe the exception of the first one, I think has some value. But we certainly have a, a definite position on this. The first is the preterist view, which I've already mentioned. That Revelation is a heightened symbolic description of events that have already happened. That when John wrote this, it was kind of like Lamentations. He was looking back on the persecutions of Nero, the fall of Jerusalem, and hoping that someday Jesus would come and make it right. Um, I do not think that that is the best way to read this book. And uh, that's, that's what I'll say about that. The next one is the historicist view. Now, the historicist view is kind of like the present like the right now view of Revelation. This believes that the book of Revelation is an extended prophecy of all of church history. And that until Jesus comes back, however many thousands of years, you're going to see these things happen. And there are specific reference to different historical events. This was the view of the reformers during the Reformation. They believed that the Pope was the Antichrist. They believed that the seven churches were the seven ages of the church. Jonathan Edwards believed that uh, the United States of America was going to be uh, God's new kingdom that he was going to establish on the world. And um, the difficulty with that is that you're, you're constantly looking through history to identify what these things are. But as you go through history, new things happen and you wonder, where does this fit? Maybe this guy wasn't as much a big deal as we thought he was. So uh, we're, we wouldn't hold to that view either. There are some radical people that you may have heard about. Um, they're called theonomists. This is the belief that if you've heard of like the Christian nationalist movement and all that other stuff, that we ought to take the Bible and by force bring it upon the world and establish 
establish laws and government according to the Bible. That really sounds good, but what it amounts to is, is, a, is a kind of Christian jihad in a lot of cases. And they believe that you know, revelation is what's happening now. It's up to us to make it happen. If we're not fighting against this, or this is why people will say things like, well, the, you know, the COVID vaccine is the mark of the beast. And we would go, wait a minute, there's, there's no beast yet. How are we supposed to, you know? Well, if you believe that all these things are unfolding right now, then you would be susceptible to those kinds of things. The other is the idealist view. This is kind of the, the smart guy, can't we all get along view. Uh, this is the belief that it might be symbolizing real things, but it's impossible to know that. All it really is trying to do is give us symbolic lessons for the Christian life. That Christians are going to struggle and face persecution, and we'll have victory in the end, but you can't point to anything in Revelation and say, this is going to happen just like this. That is a very common high church position, and um, it is also, I have found, a, an increasing position among evangelicals who are embarrassed by the prophecy movement, if, if you want to call it that. And that's, again, not a good reason to do theology. But here's the fourth, re fourth thing, and this is where we would stand. And I would say most of you, if you've studied Revelation, if you've been through a prophecy study before, most of those teachers are going to be futurist. This means that the Revelation is primarily future, right, with the exception of chapters 2 and 3, maybe 4 and 5, but it's future concerning the eschaton, the end times, and that all these things are going to be fulfilled. And there's debate over how, but a futurist position says these things are coming, and we would hold to that position, mostly because that's exactly what it says in the early chapters. Um, but of course, if you're not going to take it literally, then you can do whatever you want. We believe that Revelation is a legitimate prophecy of the future. John didn't just make this up. When he says an angel spoke to me or God said or I saw that that really happened. Isaiah 46.10 tells us that God is the only God who can reveal the end from the beginning. And I believe that that is exactly what we have here. There's also a growing thing called an eclectic position of Revelation. And uh, what this means is we want to take the best of each of these views and incorporate them. Uh, usually the eclectic position is somebody that is convinced that most of this is future, but I, I, you know, if I can just say it like this, they don't want to get lumped in with the rapture crowd. Um, or you know, there's other reasons for doing that. But I would just say it like this, because they say, well, if you believe it's all future, then you believe that none of it applies to you. I'll say I have never met a good futurist Bible teacher that thought that, that there's nothing in here for you. It's just future. Of course. In fact, I believe that only the futurist position can accommodate the other views. We can agree that some of these things are played out historically in miniature, right? John said there have been many antichrists, but you're waiting for the ultimate antichrist. We, of course, are going to get all kinds of idealist lessons out of this. All kinds of lessons about enduring persecution and prayer and, and all the rest of that. But we have to agree that at the basic level, this is a prophecy of the future. And the reason that we are going to arrive at that position is because we, as I've talked about before, hold to what is called a literal hermeneutic. Hermeneutic means your method of Bible study. We mean that when the by that, that when the Bible says something, it means what it says. Literal hermeneutic. I kind of prefer the term regular hermeneutic, meaning we interpret the Bible according to the regular rules of language. Because people say, oh, so you believe there's going to be a literal seven-headed dragon rampaging on the earth? No, but we believe that that seven-headed dragon represents something that is literally true and is literally going to happen. As was the case in the Old Testament. 
But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the nations, you will be exalted. And if you want to just take a symbolic view of that, oh, Bethlehem was small, and it represents that God loves things that are small. But that was fulfilled literally, that the actual Bethlehem was where Jesus was born. And Revelation, by the way, is shot through with Old Testament references. That's why we did Daniel first. You're going to have a really hard time interpreting Revelation if you don't get Daniel and Zechariah, Isaiah, Matthew, places like that. I think that a close reading of the Bible, of, of Revelation especially, will demystify it for you. When you just get it all at once, which is fine to do that, you should do that, it can be overwhelming. But when you take the time and go slow, you're like, okay, so this is referring back to this, and we know what that meant, so that means this is over here. And if we interpret this, there's really only one or two ways you could take that. And I, I believe that it is entirely possible to understand and interpret the book of Revelation, although, just as the case with any scripture, we have humility in understanding that we could be wrong about some of these things, as long as it doesn't touch against the most important matters. And I will go ahead and get some of this out of the way. Calvary Chapel, as an association and also as a church here, uh, we believe that once the symbols of Revelation are properly deciphered, which is what we're going to try to do, we arrive at two definite conclusions. The first is called premillennialism. Calvary Chapel is a premillennial church association. This means that when we get to chapter 20 and we read about the thousand-year kingdom that Jesus is going to set up, we believe that that is actually going to happen and that we are living in the days before the millennium. An amillennial position would say there's going to be no thousand years. It's just, it's just a symbol. Postmillennial would believe Jesus is coming, uh, but after we establish the kingdom. And I think that's a, that's a dangerous path to walk down. So premillennial. And I, I am about as certain of the premillennial position as I am about anything else in scripture. I, I think it's the plain reading will definitely lead you there. And then we are also a pre-tribulational church. That means that we believe that the tribulation that will be described in chapters 6 through 18 will be preceded by the rapture of the Christian church. We talked about this in 1 and 2 Thessalonians. We'll read about it in John 14, 1 Corinthians 15, Philippians chapter 3. There's all, a lot of smaller references to it, but those are some of the main ones. Um, we will discuss why at another, another date, but... Um, I would say that the pre-tribulation rapture is less certain than the premillennial view, but I'm still pretty dogged on it. I believe that that's the right way to understand it. And I will say, we have definite positions on these things here, but I want to remind us all, especially in your home fellowship groups, to be charitable and kind and loving as you discuss these things. Your understanding of the end times is, I would call it a tertiary issue. Primary issues in the Christian church are things like salvation through Christ alone. Like, you don't believe those, you're a heretic, right? Secondary issues would be things like uh, gender roles in the church. Very important and culturally very important. But, you know, there's, can be, there's disagreement on those things among people who will be saved. I'd say past that, this is one of those things that Christians can get together over coffee and discuss. As long as we know the big thing that Christ is coming back, that's, you know what, we will have lots of discussion over this. So I will be articulating a specific position, but if you disagree, and I know there are some of you in here that don't hold to those positions, there will still be a lot for you to gain and gather from this. And hopefully you'll be challenged as well to come to a better understanding of your own position uh, as you discuss ours. So that's what we're going to do. As we go through this book, we're going to seek to understand the symbols, to interpret their meaning, and then incorporate them together into a holistic eschatology in tandem with all the rest of Scripture so that we can arrive at a very definite picture of what the Lord has prophesied. 
So there are some that say you shouldn't even try to do that. Well, I disagree. I think God gave it to us so that we could do exactly that. And people will say things like, well, but it's so hard to understand. Why would God do it that way? Well, here's one reason. Because Satan is trying to establish his kingdom and stop what God's going to do. So the Lord revealed things about the future in maybe some more of this symbolic language in order to deceive him into thinking that he'll be successful. The Bible talks about that's how God did it with the first advent. Is that if Satan knew what was going to happen when he crucified Jesus, he wouldn't have done it. But God got the best of him. That's what's going to happen at the end. But let's get an outline of the book of Revelation here. Here's a, a broad structure. I like to do this because I really think it can add to your study of your Bible. But um, there's, there's six points here. Number one, chapter one is the, the introductory matters. John is going to introduce the book we're looking at today. Then he's going to have a vision of Christ, which we're going to talk about next week. That'll be lots of fun. That's the introduction. Chapters two and three, we have seven letters to seven churches. And we're going to spend a week to go over each of those because I think those are so important for the church in any age, but especially our own, that it's, it's worth our time. So it will be a while before we really get into the, the nitty gritty, if you want to call it that. But chapters two and three, the letters to the churches. Chapters four and five, John is going to have a vision of heaven. And a lot of your favorite worship songs draw from those passages. So maybe we'll have to sing a few of them. John has a vision of heaven. Number four, the bulk of the book, chapters 6 through 18, describes what's called the tribulation period, when God pours out his wrath on the world and what happens during that time. Number five, chapters 19 and 20. Chapter 19 is kind of a transitional passage, but 19 and 20 is about Christ's kingdom. In 19, he establishes the kingdom. In chapter 20, he rules over the kingdom, and we see how it will end getting into chapter 21 and 22. Number six, which is the eternal state. It's about the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, heaven. And that's, that's going to be a lot of fun, too, for us to go through that. The great structural difficulty of the book of Revelation comes in point four, in chapters 6 through 18. And we are not going to discuss this today, but it's something to think about. You have the six seal judgments, the six trumpet, or seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, and seven bowl judgments. Question becomes... Are these linear, meaning they go from one through the end, or are they cyclical, meaning are they just recapitulations of the same thing? Good Bible teachers disagree. Ed Heinsohn, who was a great prophecy teacher, he believed that it was cyclical. John Walver, Dwight Pentecost, other guys, they believe it was linear. So we'll discuss that as we get close, but that's kind of your main question as you get to, to number four. And I'm inclined to think there may be a little bit of both, so hopefully I won't be that soft serve when we get to it. With all that understood, that John was the author, 90s AD, this is prophecy with some apocalyptic genre elements to it, that there are different ways of looking at it, but we're coming at it from a futurist position with a literal hermeneutic, with a basic outline of the book, we're ready to get into the last book of the New Testament, the closing of the canon. Let's go back to this text we read at the beginning and go through these first three verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This is what's called the superscription of the book. It's like a pre-introduction. Before you start the letter proper, we have these three verses. This is a very Johannine thing to do. Read John chapter 1. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It has that, that superscription, that pre-introduction that identifies the contents of the book. And he calls it the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the Greek word apocalypsis. You might pronounce that apocalypse. The word apocalypse is the word for revelation in your Bible. And apocalypsis means to uncover something or to unveil something or to lay it bare. So when people talk about the apocalypse is coming, that word comes from revelation. So that's an appropriate reference there. I will say, as we go, I'm not spending a lot of time on this, it is a singular revelation. When you refer to this book, it is the book of revelation not the book of Revelations. Not calling nobody out, just saying that's the way it is. The revelation of Jesus Christ. It says of Jesus Christ, this is what's called a subjective genitive. Don't worry about it. What it means is Christ is the one doing the revealing. Because if you look at that of, is this the revelation of Jesus Christ? Is Christ the one being revealed or is he the one revealing it? This is what Greek nerds talk about in their spare time. It's a subjective genitive. Christ is the one doing the revealing. Because as it says, God gave him, that's Christ, to show his servants, Christ's servants, the things that must soon take place. So this is from Jesus. And in fact, as you go through this, you'll see that Jesus speaks to the churches. He speaks often. He'll speak at the end of the book. In Matthew 24, 36, Jesus had said, No one knows the time of his coming. Not, the or not even the Son knows that. And so it had to be given from the Father to the Son to reveal these things. We're going to talk more about the Trinity in just a minute here. But the purpose of the book is given in verse 1. To show to his servants, douloi can be translated slaves, the things that must soon take place. To show, that word for show is semino. It, it, it comes from the word related to semantics, meaning signs, right? To demonstrate through signs what is coming. Amos 3 verse 7 says God does nothing without first revealing it to his servants, the prophets. So if you don't believe this is revealing anything real, you have to contend with Amos there. I would say that that is an endorsement of how we read this book, which is the futurist view. That it was given to reveal the future to us. He gave him to show to his servants what? The things that must soon take place. It was mediated by an angel. Sending his angel to his servant John. That's how God does it very often in the Bible. But it wasn't just sent by an angel. It was inspired by the Spirit. We have to know that and remember that about every book of the Bible. That this is not just a, an apocalyptic book that John made up. And that is just his opinion and may or may not bear any reality to the future. Peter told us in 2 Peter 1, 20-21... Knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So as we go through this book, we are not just reading John's opinions. We are reading revelation from Almighty God. And some people say, well, apocalyptic books like this, everybody kind of knew that they weren't literal. Well, First of all, Revelation is very different from the other apocalyptic writings. And second of all, right at the very beginning, it tells us what this is. If we do not take this book seriously as it is written, then we're going to be in some serious error. Made known to his servant John, we talked about him, and he's described as the one who bore witness. That's the Greek word martyreo. That's where we get our English word martyr. A martyr is a witness, and it came to mean a witness unto death. And this is what it tells us he was. 
That word witness, martyr, is going to be very significant throughout the book of Revelation. We're going to see it a lot. In fact, we're going to see it again before this day is even over. But what did he witness to? What did he testify of? The word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ, and all that he saw. And those three things could just be referring to the book of Revelation. I think this is a reference to the totality of everything John did. That he testified to the word of God, to the testimony of, God, of Jesus Christ, the gospel, and all that he saw. That I mean, this would include the gospel of John, the epistles of John, and now the revelation of John. John was a faithful evangelist. He held to the gospel to the end. He was the last apostle surviving at the end of these days, and he held fast to that gospel. He was a faithful witness. Then in verse 3, we, there's a blessing for you. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. That's me. But also those who hear. And you're hearing, so blessed are you, brothers and sisters. It says read aloud because that's how they did it in the churches. They would read these letters aloud. You can see references to it in the, the epistles of Paul especially. He'll say, when this is read, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So when he specifically calls out a, a certain person, remember, this was done in the congregation. But also those who hear, but not just who hear it, but who keep it, right? Who keep what is written in it. James 1.22, do not be a hearer of the word only, but a doer of the word. So just sitting and listening to it isn't enough to be blessed. You've got to obey what it teaches you. Keep that in mind so that we will be blessed as we study this book. And he adds, for the time is near. Together with what he said in verse 1, the things that must soon take place. That phrase, must soon take place, is lifted from the book of Daniel, chapter 2. When Daniel gave the vision of the, of the statue with the four metals and then the rock that became the mountain, he said, God has given you, Nebuchadnezzar, a vision of the things that must soon take place. Jesus referenced that also in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. And now John brings it here. These things must soon take place. The time is near. It is impossible to read the New Testament plainly, understand it as it was written, without arriving at a doctrine of what's called imminence. Imminence. That meant that the church believed that Jesus was coming soon, perhaps even in their own lifetime. Now, this does not mean that there's a specific timeline. What imminent means, there is no sign or event that must take place before the return of Jesus Christ. This is important because lots of people will say, well, once the temple is built, then Jesus can return. Or once this or that happens, then Jesus, no, nothing is stopping Jesus from returning. It's one reason we believe in the pre-tribulational rapture, because I don't understand how you can have an imminent understanding of the return of Christ if, first of all, you have to have seven years of signs and events that take place in the book of Revelation. But then we say, okay, how can we say it's coming soon or that the time is near, when this was written in 95 AD, almost 2,000 years ago. Did you know that the Bible specifically answers that question? Specifically answers that question. 2 Peter chapter 3 said, In the end days, there's going to be people that scoff and say, You guys have been saying Jesus is coming back since long ago. But Peter says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. That verse is specifically in reference to the seeming delay of the return of Jesus. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
Why is Jesus taking so long? Because he wants more people to get saved. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, meaning no one's going to expect it when it comes. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Peter ends that passage by saying, it's coming and you better be ready. You can't know when it's coming. So anybody that wants to set a date for any of these things, change the channel. Okay. But he says, but you, but you don't know when it's coming. So you need to be ready like it could be today, because it might be. And 1 John 2.18 tells us, Brothers, it is the last hour. If John the Apostle was living in the last hour, what are we living in? It's called stoppage time. Meaning that the clock's already run out. All we're waiting is for the referee to blow the whistle and say, we're all done. Surely his coming is close now. And that ought to give you a sense of urgency as we study the revelation of the end, that these things could begin today. Urgency, imminence, Jesus could come back today. That song we sang this morning, It Might Be Today, that's a Calvary Chapel classic. I do not know a better song that articulates the doctrine of imminence than that song right there. Verse 4, now the epistle begins. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. The ESV puts a paragraph break right there. That's an excellent place to pause. So we're going to pause right there. This is the benediction. This is the proper beginning of the letter. We are going to learn next week that John wrote this from the Isle of Patmos while he was in exile to these other churches. So he was not able to be there in person. But we'll discuss that more next time. And he addresses the seven churches in Asia. Real quick, the number seven is going to be very significant in the book of Revelation, as it is throughout the whole Bible. So will be the number three. So will be the number 12, the number six. You know, God seems pretty into numbers. And modern theologians say a lot of things like, oh, these numbers meant something to them, but we know that they're not real. They're not serious, to which I say, why not? That's you imposing your own culture on what the Bible says. God seems to have a thing for numbers. 40, 7, 12, 1,000. We're going to see a lot of those. But these are seven churches in Asia. This is not the continent of Asia. This is the Roman province of Asia, which would be today what we call Asia Minor or Western Turkey. And these cities, in many cases, that we're going to talk about next time, are still standing in some cases. Chapters 2 and 3 will include a letter from Jesus to each one of those seven churches. And then just like Paul and the other apostles, he greets them, grace to you and peace. Grace was, uh, comes from the Greek greeting, which was kyre. The word charis is related to that, and it means grace. And the Hebrew greeting was shalom which meant peace. So by saying charis and shalom, although they would have used the Greek word irene, it's, it's, it's Jews and Gentiles together. It's a really profound thing that we could talk about and we have at various times. Grace and peace, a unified church under the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then you get to this benediction. He's asking for blessings upon them. This section, verses four and five, is one of the most striking, wonderful, Trinitarian verses in the whole Bible. I love these verses, and we're actually going to slow down a little bit to look at this because I don't want to miss it. And I listened to a lot of different Bible teachers as I was preparing for this, and almost all of them would mention the Trinity here and then just move on. 
I don't like doing that because I feel like we're slipping on the Trinity in the wider culture. So we're going to talk about this. Look at, just look, it's so wonderful. Look at it. Who's blessing the churches? Who's giving them grace and peace? Number one, him who was, or who is and who was, and who is to come. This is a reference to God the Father. God the Father, who was, who is, and who is to come. This is a reference back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where Moses said, Lord, you want me to go and tell the people we're going out of Egypt, but I don't even know your name. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. So say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That is vocalized variously as Jehovah, more likely would have been Yahweh. And that's God's name. I am. And he's, he's kind of expanding that out. Can you see this? Like the, the present I am, he includes God was, God is, and God will be. He's all time. But you'll notice he doesn't say who will be. He uses the Greek word erkamenos, which means who is coming, who is to come. Now, some people said John didn't want to ever say that God will be as if he wasn't now. I don't think that's the point. I think he's just tying it together, the whole theme of the book of Revelation, that he's coming. And we need to remember that he's coming. But you have a past, present, and future description of the aseity of God. This is a theology word. Aseity. It means that God is self-existent. There was no time when God came into existence. He is. He always has been. So everything comes into existence. Yes, God made it. Well, who made God? Nobody. That's why he's God. It's really important to grasp, as old as the book of Exodus is, that the theological and philosophical profundity behind the name of God, I mean, folks still haven't caught up to that. It is God's characteristic of self-existence. And we know that God is one, but when we're talking about the Trinity, that attribute of aseity is, is especially attributed to God the Father. The origins of the persons of the Trinity is a fascinating study, but the Son of God is described as being eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit is described as eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. But the Father proceeds and is begotten by no one. And again, this is making distinctions in the Trinity now, but that's what John is doing. He's making distinctions. That God is. Sometimes this is called the monarchy of the Father, although that term has been abused. I still like it. God the Father, who was, who is, and who is to come. Second, the seven spirits who are before his throne. This is a reference to God the Holy Spirit. Usually he's listed third, but he's listed second here. Now this is odd because it says, why does it say seven spirits? And that is the Greek. It doesn't say sevenfold. It says seven spirits. It'll say that again in chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 5, and chapter 5, verse 6. So four times, the seven spirits of God. So some will come out and say, oh, these are angels. These are angels because, you know, right to the angel of the church of this, right? He's talking about them. That, that is not the case. The book of Revelation, when it is describing angelic beings, refers to them as angels. And also, in a, in a setting like this, we have God the Father. After this, we're going to have God the Son. Right in the middle, we're going to have some angels. Matthew 28, 19, it's another Trinitarian passage. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You don't get to say, well, some angel. No, the Holy Spirit. When you're speaking in terms like this, it's Trinitarian. Okay, so why does he say it this way? 
We know there's only one Holy Spirit, so why is he described this way? Well, there's one very interesting verse that people love to refer to. Isaiah 11, verse 2, when it talks about the branch that'll come from the, the root of Jesse, talking about Jesus, the Messiah, it says this in Isaiah 11:2, 2, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. There's a sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit in Isaiah 11, verse 2. So that could be what he's referring to. Uh, that John is, is aware of this. He's going to make a ton of references to Isaiah. So that could be exactly what's going on. I think a better reference, though, is Zechariah chapter 4. You all know one of these verses anyway, but Zechariah 4, verse 2. He's having a vision. The angel said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand, a menorah of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it and seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. Two olive trees by it, one on the right and the other on its left. And then verse six, and he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, as in what does this sevenfold lampstand represent? Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit says the Lord. So I think that's probably where he's getting this from mostly. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, he will describe the Spirit of God as the seven spirits being before the throne like lamps. He'll compare him to lamps and fire. So it could be that he's looking back to Zechariah. I do like that Isaiah verse, and that could be what he's looking at. I think the best way to describe it, this is a heightened description of the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits of God. We know that there's only one Holy Spirit, but the book of Revelation is very symbolic and heightened and magisterial language. So that's what we have here of God's Holy Spirit. He burns as a light for each of the churches as we're going to see. No church has less of God's Holy Spirit who convicts us and saves us and sanctifies us and empowers us in Jesus' name. And third, from Jesus Christ. If you don't think that the Bible teaches the deity of Christ, what is he doing listed here? And he gives a three-part description of Jesus. Again, this, this three is symbolic here. That reveals the whole gospel. He calls him the faithful witness. There's that term witness again. When was Jesus a faithful witness? Paul in 1 Timothy 6.13 tells us, at his crucifixion, he made the good confession. He was placed under incredible torment and pain, and yet he maintained the testimony of the gospel. And that is our, our picture to look to as we face suffering and persecution, to be faithful witnesses like he was. Then the firstborn of the dead, Jesus rose again, and we're all going to rise again with him. Colossians 1.18 also calls Jesus the firstborn from the dead. Apparently, this was a common term that they used, that just as Jesus died as a faithful witness, he rose from the firstborn of the dead. And number three, the ruler of the kings on earth. That is a reference to the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. And the book of Revelation is all about how that kingdom will be established on this earth. All three of those descriptions come from Psalm 89. Psalm 89, 27 says this of the Messiah, I will make him the firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth. And then verse 37, a faithful witness in the skies. Got to know your Old Testament if you want to understand your New Testament. Here laid out with the, the death, the resurrection, the coming of Jesus Christ, the entire gospel that Ephesians 1 tells us was the plan of the Trinity. The triune God decided to save the world 
And that's why you, you have this amazing benediction. I see in these verses, you might even call it the pinnacle of Trinitarian revelation. Like we, we talk about God and we talk about Jesus and the Holy Spirit and they're placed together. And you got passages like John 1 and 1 Corinthians 2. And there's lots of like Matthew 28 passages where they're listed together. But this just takes it to a whole nother level. That they, he is blessing the churches in the name of the Holy Trinity. Can I just say in passing, the Trinity might be the most glorious doctrine of the Bible. Amen. Even the gospel is a revelation of our triune God. It is absolutely essential for a Christian to believe. If you start messing with the Trinity, the gospel falls apart right away. And if you don't believe me, examine those churches that have messed with the Trinity and see where they ended up. We're talking about who God is. Don't compromise on it, but revel in it. Delight in the Trinity. I'll just end this section by quoting from the Athanasian Creed, which is kind of that agreed upon description of who God is. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. You don't confuse Father, Son, and Spirit, but you do not divide up God as if there were three of them. There is one God in three persons. Glory, hallelujah. And it is from the Holy Trinity that we receive this glorious revelation. Verse 5 through 7, now second half of verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Now we have a doxology, which is giving glory to God, and specifically to Jesus Christ here, giving him all the praise and all the glory. He says that he loves us. That's the motivation for everything Jesus did for you, is that he loved you. And I do not like doctrines and statements of the truth that minimize that motivation of Jesus. Yeah, God loved you, but really it was about his glory. Well, in his glory, God revealed how much he loved us as the reason why he saved us. He loves you. He's freed us from our sins by his blood. That's, of course, a description of the cross that paid for sin. You don't get forgiveness without the cross. Unless you're washed in the blood, you are not saved. In his love, God desired to free us from our sins because the penalty for sin is eternal death in hell. But God is so good, he cannot simply pardon wickedness because that would be wrong to do that. So what did he do? He offered up his own son, Jesus, as a substitution to bear that eternal wrath of God on the cross that you deserved so that he could offer you freedom and forgiveness for free. Not only are we forgiven, but we are exalted in Christ, made a kingdom and priests to Jesus as God and Father. In John 20, 17, he also referred to the, the Lord as Jesus as God and Father. John obviously wrote this book, Kingdom and Priests. Looking back to Exodus 19, 6, this is what God told Israel when he made the covenant with them at Mount Sinai. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Peter mentions it in 1 Peter 2. Well, what does that affect me? I'm not a Jew. I'm a Gentile. The blessing of Abraham has extended beyond the children of Israel to the Gentiles through the gracious grafting in of our God 
so that now we can offer forgiveness freely. And in Revelation, we're going to see the consummation of that promise. Yes, we are tasting the foretaste of the kingdom now, but when Jesus returns, we are going to reign with him and serve with him as kings and priests on the earth. That's why glory and dominion belong to Jesus. These are royal terms. Kings have glory. Kings have dominion. And Jesus Christ is indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Christ as king, you might say, is the theme of the book of Revelation. That Christ is coming again as king. And we see it again in verse 7. He is coming. And he, he puts in this verse here two major Old Testament references to Jesus. He's reminding us that all these things you read about in the Old Testament apply to Jesus Christ in the future. He says he's coming with the clouds. We read this not long ago. Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Anytime you see a reference of Jesus Christ coming on the clouds, it's a reference back to Daniel chapter 7, which is why in Mark 14, when Jesus told the high priest, I'm coming on the clouds of heaven, Caiaphas tore his robes and sent him away to be crucified. He knew what he meant. We should be overwhelmed that all scripture is consummated in Jesus. Make no mistake, Jesus is coming back. The New Testament is abundantly clear on that point. When he ascended to heaven on the Mount of Olives and the disciples were staring up watching, two angels show up and say, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus will also come in the same way as he left. And it said when he left, when he departed, a cloud concealed him. He's coming with the clouds. And we believe, theologically, there will be two stages to that coming. The rapture of the church, John 14, and the second coming. But I'm not talking about that today. This passage is emphasizing that second coming. When, here's our second Old Testament passage, every eye will see him. That's, that's not a, I don't believe, a reference to satellite technology. I believe that when Christ comes, it's going to rock the world. Yes. No one's going to miss it. No chance of being passed over. No escape from his judgment. This comes from Zechariah 12, 10. When the Lord said in the end of days, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him who they pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. And John says it here. He's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Jesus ascribed this verse to himself in Matthew 24, verse 30. If you are not wailed in repentance over your own sin, you will wail in despair when Jesus returns. He came once, came as a baby lying in a manger so that he could die on a cross and offer forgiveness to you. But those who scorn that and reject his forgiveness, when he comes back, he's coming as a roaring lion with a sword in his hand to judge the nations. Matthew 25 tells us that when the Son of Man comes and all the holy angels with him, he'll separate the nations before him like a shepherd separates sheep and the goats. 
To the righteous, he will say, Come ye, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. But to the wicked, he will say, Depart from me, you cursed ones, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Even so, amen, John says. Those are two Greek words. The first word is nigh. It just means yes. And the second one is amen. That's a Hebrew word that means let it be so. This is absolutely sure. The resurrection proves it. That's Acts 17. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we know that he's coming. And that when he comes, he's coming with judgment and recompense in his hand. So all glory belongs to Jesus. Now and forever. And when you decide to give that glory is going to have a defining impact on where you spend eternity. If you say, I'll wait until he comes, you will give glory to Jesus and then be sent away to the lake of fire. But if you glorify him and fall on your knees and call him Lord now, then eternal glory in heaven waits for you. Verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. God himself speaks in this verse. And I believe, to go back to our Trinitarian point here, that now you were speaking of the oneness, the unity of God. That this, ver this phrase that was specifically attached to the Father in the previous verse is now attached to the entirety of the Lord, the whole Trinity. There's a great quote that I wish I could give you from one of the church fathers. He says, as soon as I meditate on the oneness of God, I'm carried away and wondering at the threeness of God. And then when I consider the three, I'm brought right back to the fact that God is one. And that's what it means to contemplate the Trinity, man. The Alpha and the Omega. Alpha was the first letter of the Hebrew, or the, sorry, the Greek alphabet. And Omega was the last letter of the Hebrew, uh, Greek alphabet. It's like the A and the Z. And he's going to actually make this reference again in chapter 21 and 22. This is the bracket of the book. The beginning and the end. God says, I'm the beginning and the end. The A and the Z. The Alpha and the Omega. The Lord is coming with all power. And none who have defied him will escape. When? Soon. Soon and very soon. But for you today, the offer goes out to receive his love and forgiveness now. You can't have it both ways. You can't say it's not fair for God to judge people and also scoff at him for waiting 2,000 years, giving people a chance to repent. This book is a warning above all else that you must bow to the king now. Turn from your sins. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel and you will be saved. If not, then terrible judgment awaits you. The wrath of God will fall on your own shoulders. Or you can call upon Christ, who already bore the wrath of God on the cross. The book has been opened, and we know how it ends. So are you ready for our coming Lord Jesus?